please open your Bibles to page one yet again. We'll be on page one for a little while uh, as we continue our sermon series through the book of Genesis. You know, the Old Testament and the New Testament affirm that Genesis is a message from God to his people through his servant Moses. As I said last week, we're going to take it slow through these opening verses of Genesis 1 because they have a whole lot to say and that we need to to understand and to, to think through and to live in light of. Now, last week, we looked at only the first four words of Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God. Okay, today we're going to pick up the pace and make it all the way through verse 2. Okay, so we're going warp speed today. And uh, what we saw last week is that in the beginning, God means that there was, there was an absolute beginning to the universe. That the universe is not eternal. That before there was anything, right, there was God. So, in fact, the, you know, the leading scientific theory of how the universe was created is that around 13.7, 13.8 billion years ago, there was nothing, and then there was an explosion, a big bang at a single point, and that event caused everything to come into being. Now, some Christians believe that Genesis 1-1 is describing the big bang. And if there was a big bang, then God certainly did it. Okay, but what I do know for certain is what the Bible says And I'm much more concerned about what the Bible clearly teaches than the variety of scientific possibilities and theories. And so I'll share with you a quote that I shared last week that I think is so helpful. It's very simple, but I think it's helpful to remember. It's from the Bible commentator, Matthew Henry, that he said, the first verse of the Bible gives us a surer and better, more satisfying and useful knowledge of the origin of the universe than all the volumes of the philosopher's. The lively faith of humble Christians understands this matter better than the elevated fancy of the greatest minds. So the very first verse of the Bible is teaching us that before the beginning of the cosmos, before the beginning of the universe, before the beginning of history, God was there, right? And before is not even really the right word because God's not merely before the creation of all things. God is not even a part of the creation of all things, right? He's wholly other than and apart from his creation and his creatures, right? I use the word before because I'm trying to use a word just to communicate this. I mean, it's not even adequate to say that God was always there, right? Because God is not in, he's not part of space and time. He enters into it. He's completely other, transcendent. We saw last week a lot about God that that we learned from Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, right? Last week, we were reminded that God is eternal, that he's the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, that that our God and his glory is from everlasting to everlasting, enduring forever. He's eternal, and he's almighty, right? We believe that our eternal, everlasting, almighty God, who always has been, created all things ex nihilo out of nothing, by the word of his power. Our eternal almighty God is also transcendent. I've already mentioned this, right? That there's an infinite distance between the creator and the creation. An infinite distance between the creator and his creatures, right? God is not merely a bigger, better version of us, right? He's transcendent. He's completely other and beyond and above us. 
And yet, He's also imminent and personal. Right? He desires for us to know Him. Isn't that incredible? An eternal, almighty, transcendent God desires that we would know Him. Desires for us to have a personal relationship with Him. We also saw last week that that He is self-sufficient. That our God does not depend on anything outside of Himself. That He's complete in Himself. Our God is self-contained, self-sufficient. He cannot, He does not and cannot ever lack for anything. We also saw that He's immutable, which means that He does not and He cannot change. That God always has been, always will be, precisely as He is now. Right? And what a comfort it is that this is the God that we have, eternal and almighty and transcendent and yet imminent and self-sufficient and immutable. He cannot, will not ever change. His promises cannot, will not ever change. And this eternal, almighty, transcendent, imminent, self-sufficient, immutable God created the heavens and the earth. All things. And today, in verses 1 and 2, we learn what the earth was like when it was first created. And so here now, God's holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible, life-giving word, I read Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. This is the word of the Lord. And it's absolutely true. It's given to you in love and for your good. And I think even as I was reading that, I think I heard somebody's Bible software open. So somebody's going to be checking me out today, I think. So that's good. Let's keep, let's check, let's study it hard, look at it closely. So Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. We're going to look at these verses phrase by phrase today. So verse 1, in the beginning, God created. So let's just stop there, God created. There are lots of words in ancient Hebrew that can be used to describe someone making things, forming things, building things out of existing material. There's lots of words to describe making, forming, building things like a carpenter building a chair, a sculpture, you know, carving out, an artist car- carving out a sculpture out of existing material. But the Hebrew word, Hebrew verb translated created in verse 1 is only and always used for God. It's only and always used for what only God does because only God can create ex nihilo out of nothing by the word of his power. Commentator Alan Ross says, the verb used for create is used in Scripture exclusively for the activity of God. Humans may make, form, or build. To the Hebrew, however, only God creates. And God did not create the heavens and the earth out of pre-existing materials. He created ex nihilo out of nothing. Hebrews 11.3 says, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the Word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Okay, so God created. Okay, well, what did God create? So look again at verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So let's think about that phrase, the heavens and the earth. Right, we we affirmed earlier in the service, we believe this to be true whenever we recited the Apostles' Creed together. Right, we said... 
I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. We affirm that, okay? But what is meant by that phrase, the heavens and the earth? Think about that. What's included in that? You may not be impressed with this answer, but everything, everything. Your commentator Gordon Wenham says, Genesis 1-1 could therefore be translated, in the beginning, God created everything. In the beginning, God created out of nothing, ex nihilo, everything that is. Alistair Payne, a, a pastor in Cambridge, says, the heavens and the earth is deliberately all-inclusive. There's not a postal address anywhere in the cosmos which does not have one or the other as its bottom line. Right, Everything's in the heavens or on earth. God made all that. The galaxies, the black holes, the earth, the rainforest, incy-wincy spider, you, me, everyone. He is not the result of our imagination. We are the result of his. Okay, so in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, meaning everything. But everything does not only mean everything that we see or everything that can be seen with our eyes. Commentator David Atkinson goes on. The phrase, heaven and earth, describes everything that is not God. It means, first of all, totality. But it may be that in this separation of all that is into heavens and earth, the unseen and the seen, we are here, as elsewhere in the Bible, being reminded that there is within creation a lower visible earthly reality and a higher invisible heavenly reality, and God is creator of all. That heaven sometimes stands for the sky. More often, heaven refers to a higher world of angels, of God's throne, of God's glory. Now think about that, okay, before we go on with the quote, God's glory. I don't want you to miss, okay, the grandeur of God's glory that's here in these opening verses of the Bible, right? We can be distracted from what's clearly here, the grandeur of God's greatness and his glory by all the various questions that we have. And I know we've got questions and we're going to spend time you know, going through Genesis 1, but don't miss that this passage is ultimately, the Bible is ultimately about the grandeur of our great God's glory. There may be much within the created world which we cannot sense, cannot weigh and measure, cannot put in a test tube. There may be more things in heaven and earth that are dreamed of in our philosophy, but the Lord God made them all. There is a created spiritual world just as there is a created material world. Okay, so keep this quote that I just read um, in your mind, okay, and what it says about how God created the heavens and the earth, meaning more than just God created the material universe and how it also includes God creating the spiritual universe as well. Okay, and think about what the Nicene Creed adds to what the Apostle Creed says about God the Father Almighty, right? We affirm the Apostles' Creed this morning. The Nicene Creed adds, see, we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. You see, the early church seemed to understand that Genesis 1-1 included the creation of the material universe and the spiritual universe. Commentator David Atkinson adds, for all that is made, heaven and earth, 
comes from the hand of God. In our world, which overemphasizes material and earthly values, which so often understands human life only in terms of material factors, such as body chemistry or economic cost effectiveness, we need to remember that we are creatures of a God who made the heavens as well as the earth. Now, we're going to talk more about this in the weeks to come, right? But what's meant by God created the heavens and the earth is that God created everything. All that we can see and all the laws of nature that, that we know to be true, but it also means that God created the, the spiritual world and all the spiritual and moral laws that are true too. Laws that are summarized in the Ten Commandments. You see, it matters that we know and trust that our Creator God supernaturally created the heavens and the earth all according to His will. Right? One of the most basic and fundamental truths that Christians must affirm is that our Creator God supernaturally created the heavens and the earth. Right? That, that is, if we want to rightly know who God is and who we are and how we are to live in His world, that we have to understand this. We have to believe it and trust it. I mean, this is why the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, both begin with this affirmation, very clear affirmation of God as the maker of heaven and earth. Okay, put another way, if we can convince ourselves to question or even deny God as creator, then we can deceive ourselves into thinking we can live however we want. Because if there's no creator God, then we're free to create our own meaning and our own truth, right? Because everything is just given over to relativism. Everything's just given over to meaninglessness. And many people try to do this very thing, right? Listen to how the Apostle Paul puts it in Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they, need, they knew God, they did not honor him as, their, as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. See, in this, I mean, that's, it's not a new thing for people to seek to convince themselves that there is no God, and therefore there are no standards, there are no rules, there are no laws. There's no meaning that's, that's forced upon us from a Creator God. But when we do this, as Paul lays out, we're suppressing the truth. We're exchanging the truth for a lie to our own detriment. Now, and some, and some, some who are doing it actually know why they're doing it, and they know they are doing it. 
You know, one of the leading um, atheists of the 20th century was Aldous Huxley. Listen to his admission in his own autobiography. He says, for myself, as no doubt for most of my contemporaries, he didn't say many, but most, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation. The liberation we desired was simultaneously liberation from a certain political and economic system and liberation from a certain system of morality. I had motives for not wanting the world to have a meaning. Consequently, I assumed that it had none and was able without any difficulty to find satisfying reasons for this assumption. I mean, that's certainly how I thought and how I reasoned, how I justified my life and many of my sins as, as a young adult non-Christian. I didn't want to even think about God, a God who created and ordered the world according to his will and who revealed his will in the Bible, right? I mean, if there was no God, then I thought, hey, I'm free to create my own morality. If there's no God, I get to determine what's, what's right or wrong. I mean, I, listen, I was, you know, I was a total pagan, but I desperately wanted to be a good guy as long as I got to determine what good was and how you, became, how you were a good guy. And guess what? The more and the harder I tried to close my mind, and closed my heart to even the possibility of a creator God who had spoken in the Bible, and who had created all things, the harder it became for me to even consider believing anything else. The more I closed my ears to it, the more I carved my heart towards it, the harder it became for me to believe anything else. I didn't want to believe anything else. Now, C.S. Lewis in uh, one of his children's books, in the Chronicles of Narnia series, I think captured this pretty well. And this is, is from his book, The Magician's Nephew, which a lot of folks don't know as well as The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, but I really like The Magician's Nephew. I recommend it to you. And the following excerpt is a little bit long, but it's from the creation account of Narnia. And in the story, Aslan, who is the Jesus character, he sings Narnia into existence. Okay, but one of the villains, Uncle Andrew, closes his ears to the song and the reality of what's happening before his eyes, and his heart becomes harder and harder. And so C.S. Lewis writes, When the lion had first begun singing, long ago when it was still quite dark, he, that's Uncle Andrew, had realized that the noise was a song, and he had disliked the song very much. It made him think and feel things he did not want to think and feel. Then when the sun rose and he saw that the singer was a lion, only a lion, as he said to himself, he tried his hardest to make believe that it wasn't singing. It never had been singing, only roaring as any lion might in a zoo in our own world. Of course, it can't really have been singing, he thought. I must have imagined it. I've been letting my nerves get out of order. Who ever heard of a lion singing? And the longer and more beautiful the lion sang, the harder Uncle Andrew tried to make himself believe that he could hear nothing but roaring. Now, the trouble about trying to make yourself stupider than you really are is that you very often succeed. And Uncle Andrew did. He soon did hear nothing but roaring in Aslan's song. Soon he couldn't have heard anything else, even if he had wanted to. And when at last the lion spoke and said, Narnia, awake, he didn't hear any words. He had heard only a snarl. You see, one of the repeated warnings, which is also an invitation, 
that we see all throughout the scriptures, Old Testament and New Testament, is today, if you hear God's voice, do not harden your heart. It's both a warning and it's an invitation. So I think it's worth us considering, you know, have you been doing this? Have you been hardening your heart? Are you doing it? You know, maybe, maybe not in whether or not you believe in God as creator. I mean, most of us, you know, affirm that heartily this morning in the Apostles' Creed. But, but are you, have you been, are you currently closing your ears, closing your eyes, hardening your heart to the truth of God's word in other areas of your life where God's word's clearly calling you to, to repent, turn away from sin, to run, to run to Christ for the grace that he's purchased for you with his life, death, and resurrection. To seek to follow God wholeheartedly. See, there is a God who created the heavens and the earth. There really is. And he's given us his word. And yet, as we read in Romans 1, we've sinned and we've rebelled and we've made every effort to suppress the truth about God that's, that's plain from creation all around us. And we've too often refused to honor him as God or give thanks to him. We've all too often exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And we've worshiped and served the creature, I mean, often even ourselves, rather than the creator. But see, there, there's good news and there's hope for sinners like you and me. You see, today, if you hear God's voice, don't harden your heart. Right? Don't plug your ears. Rather, come to Christ. Come to, for the salvation that he's accomplished for you in his life, death, and resurrection. See, Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Then, verse 2 gives us a description of the earth that God created. Okay, look at Genesis 1, verse 2. You'll see the first thing we read is that the earth is without form, and it's void, and it's dark. Right, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. So let's think about these words. So without form, the Hebrew word tohu, a word that reflects a state of wilderness or desert, an uninhabited and uninhabitable place. Without form, tohu. Then the word void, bohu, empty and devoid of all living things. No plants. No animals. Tohu bohu. You guys, you guys all learn Hebrew now, right? We got this. Tohu bohu. So the earth was described by this rhythmic Hebrew phrase, tohu bohu, and these two Hebrew words are found together in only two other places in the Old Testament. Isaiah 34, Jeremiah 4. Both passages are where the prophets have visions of what the earth would look like after God's judgment. And the earth would return to what it was like in the original creation, before God gave form to the earth, and before God filled the empty void during the six days of creation. Okay, now look again at Genesis 1-2. And darkness was over the face of the deep. Now, the face of the deep is a mysterious phrase. It appears to be a very deep layer of water covering or surrounding the surface of the formless and empty earth. But I think the key here is the word dark. See, it was not God's will for his creation to remain in darkness, right? I mean, next week, we'll, we will get to verse 3 next week. 
I feel very confident. We'll get to verse 3 next week. And there we read, and God said, let there be light. And there was light. So as Ligon Duncan puts it, Genesis 1-2 is not implying that the original creation was bad, but it is reminding us that one of the blessings of God was the taking of that original creation and forming it into order and fullness and light over the six days of creation. The next thing we see is in this final sentence of verse 2. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So you see, the first half of verse 2 seems to be identifying problems, right? Without form, void, dark. There's problems with this unfulfilled potential of God's original creation. But then this second sentence in verse 2 moves us towards a solution. It's going to bring about order and fullness and light in you see, that solution is our triune God and his work in creation, right? And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now, Moses uses similar language to describe God in some of his final words before his death in Deuteronomy 32. See, in Deuteronomy 32, verse 10, it says, speaking of God, that he found him, speaking of his people, Israel, that God found Israel in a desert land, and in the howling waste, and that word that's translated waste is the Hebrew word tohu, without form. In the waste of the wilderness, he encircled him, he cared for him, he kept him as the apple of his eye. Verse 11, like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters. The same word that's translated hovers or hovering in verse 2, over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions. The Lord alone guided him. No foreign God was with him. Okay, so look back to Genesis 1-2. And the Spirit of God was hovering, fluttering over the face of the waters. So just like a mother eagle fluttering, hovering over her nest, the Spirit of God hovered over the waters of the original creation in preparation for the six days of creation that would bring form and fullness and light to the earth. And that word that's translated spirit, Hebrew word ruach, can also mean breath. Which is why we read in Psalm 33, 6, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. And again, on that first day of creation, the breath of God, the spirit of God would go forth, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. And so we see here in the second verse of the Bible, we see, we see two persons of the Trinity at work in creation. Right? We see God the Father, God the Holy Spirit. But we know, right, someone's missing. And we know that God the Father and God the Spirit, they're not alone in creation. Don't we know this? Right? We know this from John chapter 1, verses 1, 2, and 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Speaking of God the Son. So now I'm not sure that the original audience for Genesis could clearly see, okay, the doctrine of the Trinity in Genesis 1-2, but from our position in the history of redemption, we can, right? Can't we see it very clearly? And think about what we know about the Trinity. Specifically, think about what we know about the Trinity from the shorter catechism. Question six, it asks, how many persons are there in the Godhead? 
in the Trinity? The answer, there are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit, and these three are one God, the same in substance, equal in power and glory, and the point I'm making is that all three were at work in creation. And in the weeks to come, we're going to see our triune God takes that original creation and forms it into order, in fullness, in light over the six days of creation. I think I shared this quote last week um, from theologian Lane Tipton, but he says, the central concern of Scripture is the glory of the self-contained triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, not man, not the earth, not angels, not Satan, but God himself, our triune God. And guess what? Our triune God's work in creation is also a reminder for us of our triune God's work in salvation, his work in redemption, as God the Father authors our salvation and elects us for salvation, and how God the Son accomplishes our salvation by living his perfect righteous life for us, dying the atoning sacrificial death on the cross for us. And the Holy Spirit regenerates us as we're born again, as our hearts are recreated, that we become new creations. As Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. What do you think about that? Do you actually believe what that verse says? I mean, if you're, if you're a Christian, I mean, do you believe that you are a new creation in Christ? Do you actually believe that? If you're not yet a Christian, I mean, do you believe that's even possible? Do you want it to be possible? Listen, if you want it to be possible, then you need to ask yourself, okay, what is holding you back? What is keeping you from coming to Christ? Anyone who's in Christ, he's a new creation. If that sounds wonderful to you as it should, what's keeping you from it? You know, for most people, what holds them back is, is either some sin that they think is way too bad or that some sin they think is way too good and they don't want to walk away from. Or for others, it's their pride and or it's their perception of their own goodness and their own morality. Hey friends, you are here today not by accident. You're hearing this particular sermon from this particular text for a reason. Now, I would dare say, friends, as the Bible says, today is the day of salvation. And perhaps today is the day that you realize you've been closing your ears and closing your heart and hardening your heart for way too long. You see, no one is so bad that they can't come to Christ, and no one is so good, and no one has it so good that they don't need to come to Christ. So come to him. Come palms up empty-handed. He will not turn you away. You come to Christ in faith, you will find forgiveness for your sins. He will clothe you in his righteousness. He'll give you a new heart. He will put his spirit within you. I love what Pastor Kent Hughes says about verse 2 in Genesis 1. Just as the Spirit of God fluttered over the dark waters in creation, so he does over the dark hearts of humanity, preparing them for the Word of God that will make them into new creations in Christ.
Do you realize, if you're, if you're here today and you're not yet a Christian, do you realize that's exactly what happened to every Christian in the sanctuary? It's exactly what happened to every Christian in the sanctuary. That means it can happen to you. That your sin is not so big of a deal that this cannot happen to you. I mean, dear Christian, do you realize this is what happened to you? That God's grace invaded your life. That he recreated you. See, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And because that's true, he can also make you and me new too. He really can. I mean, it may sound too wonderful to be true, but guess what? It really is. It really, really is. And Genesis chapter 1 is, is reminding us of this is who our God is. This is his amazing love and his amazing grace. And it really is available to all who see their need and all who will come to Christ to receive and rest on his finished work alone for their salvation. The question is, will you come? We would love, we would love to talk to you about this, answer any questions you may have. Amen. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we, we praise you. Our God, our Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And we praise you, Father, that because that is true, because you created the heavens and the earth, that you can recreate us that we can be new creations in Christ. And the old really can pass away. As hard as it might be for some of us to believe, the new really can come. Lord, please encourage us who need to be encouraged. And I pray, Father, that you would challenge those of us who need to be challenged. Those of us who, who need to take our fingers out of our ears and again, to hear your voice and not harden our hearts, I pray that we would. I pray that we would run to Christ in faith and find the forgiveness that he has purchased for us. Lord, we love you. We ask all these things in Jesus' name.